Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Well, hurricane season is definitely upon us, and Hurricane Matthew is slamming the coast of the southeast United States. We all remember the horrible scenes of abandoned dogs during Katrina, but fortunately... We've learned a lot since then about protecting animals during hurricanes and other disasters. So what can we and should we do to keep our companion animals safe from the risks that come with hurricanes? We're going to be speaking with Jeff Dorson from the Humane Society of Louisiana in a moment. And we have a great show in store for you today. International Sloth Day is coming up, and we're going to learn some interesting facts about sloths. Also, did you know that it's Bat Appreciation Month? Peter will be interviewing a wonderful bat expert, and I hope you'll listen in, and maybe you'll get a new appreciation for these cute flying mammals. Plus, we'll be talking about wolves in honor of National Wolf Awareness Week, which is October 9th to the 15th. But first, let's talk about hurricanes and preparing for disasters with Jeff Dorson, Executive Director of Humane Society of Louisiana. Welcome to the program, Jeff. Lori, thanks for having me. It's a great topic. Jeff, the images of animals from Katrina and the stories of lost animals were so heartbreaking. Where did we go wrong and what have we done since Katrina to improve the safety for our companion animals? Well, we were all horrified at what we saw and what we experienced on the ground, Lori. So we saw the devastation, the loss of life of humans and animals. And we went to our federal legislators, and they passed federal laws and on the state level to ensure pets have a safety way out during national disasters. In other words, if people are being saved and they have pets, that the pets get to go uh, on the evacuation route as well, whether there's boats or cars. So that's good on paper. There were some things done that looks good. In reality, Lori, I, we were shocked at how the systems didn't work even during our recent flood. Mm. We had two floods in Louisiana, up north in March, and a huge one just in August. And our state, for whatever reason, declined to really mobilize well and enact uh, all the safety measures that we've practiced on for the last 10 years. So I hate to disappoint the public, but I'm on the ground. I saw it firsthand, and for whatever reason, uh, small groups had to go in because the large state just decided not to mobilize to the extent that they needed to, and lives were lost again. Oh, that's so sad, Jeff. So what key points do we want to emphasize to pet guardians about planning for disasters and what they should do if a disaster comes? Don't rely on others. It's your family. Your pets are part of your family. It's up to you. They can't swim out. You've got to help them. So have your plan in place. Microchip and tag your animals. Key point, because if you're ever separated legally, how do we ever help you reunite with your pet? So you have to have documentation. Bring your medical records. Have enough carriers per animals. We see this a lot. They have large dogs. They have no way to transport them out. They don't have a big enough car, space, kennels, food, or provisions. So they leave them behind. Bad idea. That's almost a death sentence in these types of natural disasters. And it's not just hurricanes, Lori. As you know, we now are facing wildlife, uh, wildfires and uh, large storms and flooding. So anything can happen very quickly. So your plan, your emergency plan, practice it in your mind. Pets go with you. Have enough gas in your car. That's a key point, believe it or not. Gas stations close or they get crowded, and you can't get enough gas to get on the road to get out. So have your spare gas can with you. 
have all your pets safely with you have your destination point in mind where are you going do you have family friends a hotel that you can stay at do you have enough money on your credit card another key point cash gets scarce during disasters everything kind of comes to a standstill and you're on your own so make sure you have a way out Jeff, I know there are many pet guardians who feel it's not crucial to keep their animals up to date on their vaccinations. Do you want to expand on why it's so important for your pet to be vaccinated? Yeah, thank you, Lori, because A, it tells us that your animal is healthy and can be in a general population with other animals. So imagine if we don't have that information, we have to build out quarantine areas now on top of everything else we're doing and gets very complicated very quickly which animal isn't vaccinated, which is. Then, Lori, here's another lesson that we were disappointed in. Most of the dogs we rescued, and we rescued over 500 in the recent flood, that's just in one area of our state, virtually all the dogs we rescued were heartworm positive yet again, because that's the same thing we found during Katrina. People won't spend $15 a month putting their dogs on heartworm prevention, and it breaks our hearts, because who absorbs that cost now? How can you possibly adopt out a dog that is heartworm positive. And so these individual pet owners really have to step up their game. They are not, and most of these dogs are not in good health before the flood. So you're putting enormous burden on those who are trying to help your dogs. So do it from the back line rather than the front line. Please vaccinate and put your animals on heartworm prevention. Take them regularly to the vet, have health checks, groom them, have them be a part of the family. We're seeing over and over, Lori, the dogs are tied to trees. That's where they live. And that's where they had to survive during the flood. It was heartbreaking to find them dead on the end of their rope tied to a tree yet again. So it's really up to all of us. How are our neighbors doing? Do they need education, intervention? Do they not need to have pets if they can't take care of them? So it's a very complicated system. And our, our community down south needs to up their game because we're still not... There's a lot lot of room to improve how we care for our pets down here. Jeff, what should be in the evacuation kit? Here's what you need to have. Your medical supplies, if your animals need are on medication, keep it in a safe place. Put the medical records in a plastic bag. Have your kennels ready and with your name and phone number on them. That's another key point. Remember, an evacuation is chaotic. And if you get separated, we don't even know whose animals is whose. Take a picture of you and your pet to help us identify. Imagine if you call us afterwards and say you're looking for a black cat. Well, guess what? We have 20 of them. Which one is yours? Help us out. So tattoo, microchip, collar, and tags. And a picture of you and your pet, that's a no-brainer. That will help us reunite you with your whatever pet you have. So those are four key points that you always have to remember. Your kennels, your carriers, your destination, your medical supplies if your pet's on that and enough money so that you can survive one or two weeks on the road or a different destination. Jeff, what's your website? HumaneLA.org. We still need help, Lori. We're still the only group on the ground still operating a relief center for pets, the only one like it in the area where people can still be reunited and we can help them with anything they need. We have a pet distribution center in Livingston, one of the hardest hit areas. We have a warehouse with 60 pallets of donated food that we move out regularly to impacted animals. So donate to the after incident. There's lots of work after emergencies. So help us out if you can, humanela.org, visit us on Facebook. 
Humane Society of Louisiana. In an event of a natural disaster, if you have to remember one thing, remember this. Don't leave your animals behind. Evacuate with your animals. Jeff Dorson, Executive Director of the Humane Society of Louisiana, thank you so much. My pleasure, Lori. Anytime. Peter, October 20th is International Sloth Day, so I thought it would give us a chance to talk about sloths. Okay. Sloths are arboreal animals, so they spend most of their time in trees, and they are found in the rainforest in South and Central America. So as you might guess, Peter, since these cute little creatures live in trees, they feed primarily on leaves and fruits, and they have up to four-inch-long claws used to hold onto the trees. And actually, their claws are their only natural defense. So here's your first quiz question, Peter. Oh, there we go. Yep, here we go. In the past 15... Teen years of our marriage, we've gone out in the real world and seen, what, four or five movies in actual theaters, right? Mm, yeah. One of these movies had a sloth as one of the characters. What was that film? Was that Saving Private Ryan? <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to blame? Not having children on not knowing that Ice Age? Ice Age. I okay. saw Ice Age. Okay. Do you remember his name? Of the sloth? No, no. Sid or oh, Sydney. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sloths first evolved in South America. You want to guess how many years ago? Okay, how many years ago? How about uh, 5 million years ago? 3.5 million years ago. Okay. Now, sloths are divided into two groups, three-toed sloths and two-toed sloths. Yes. Next quiz question, true or false? The slowest mammal in the world is the three-toed sloth. True or false? Oh, false. It's true. Oh, my goodness. Averages a distance of only 0.15 miles per hour, which is about 13 feet per minute. So they're really not moving any further than 100 feet in a day. Well, you know, one of my co-residents, he had a nickname, and he was called the Sloth. Now I know why. Ah. And that was a good nickname for him. He's slow walker, slow, slow talker. Nothing gets done either. Oh, I hope he's not listening to the show. True or false, sloths are clumsy on land and in water. I'm going to say that's true. False. Sloths are clumsy on land but are great swimmers. True or false, sloths sleep... To, I, Are you impressed how well I'm saying sloths? (laughs) Sloths sleep 23 hours a day. Wow. Uh, True. False. Sloths only sleep about 10 hours per day, and they are nocturnal animals. They probably have to eat the rest of the day. True or false, algae grow on their fur, which camouflages them green, which blends with the foliage. I've never heard of that. I'm going to say false. It's true. That is weird. Isn't that weird? Algae on their fur. You're not doing too well on this quiz. You don't know a lot about sloths. Mm. Three-toed sloths... Ice age. Three-toed sloths can turn their heads almost 360 degrees. True or false? False. True. Mm. True or false, Peter. Sloths are pack animals. No. False. False. Sloths are solitary creatures who only gather to mate. You want to guess how long sloths can live? Oh, uh, I'm going to say 12 years. Up to 40 years. 40 Mm-hmm. And finally, as you might guess, both the three-toed and the two-toed sloths are endangered. Aren't you impressed on how well I'm saying sloths so many times? <laughs> That's a hard one. Well, Lori, thank you for embarrassing me again, but I did want to tell you my little experience with sloths, okay? In Los Angeles, in downtown Los Angeles, the La Brea Tar Pits and Museum exists. You know about this place. You probably went there as a kid, you remember that? I don't remember that. <laughs> well, it's a wonderful place to visit. I went there alone once. I was surrounded by classes of children. And one of the featured animals is the now extinct 
Harlan's ground sloth. And this was this huge sloth that is not in the trees. It's on the ground. It went extinct at the last ice age, along with a bunch of other species they depict there, like mastodons and saber-toothed cats and these prehistoric camels and the dire wolf. Anyway, these particular sloths could be up to 1,500 pounds, and they've got amazing displays showing uh, how they lived and also how they were hunted. So if you have a chance to go to the La Brea Tar Pits and Museum, it's really a neat outing, even without children. Thanks, Peter. And don't go away more with animals today right after the break. back to animals today a few years ago our veterinarian advised us to begin giving our dogs preventative heartworm medication as you know we live in the southern california desert and it was explained to us that whereas in the past heartworm was not an issue around here more cases were being seen and the recommendations have been updated so now every month the dogs get a little tablet to chew and an expensive little tablet i must add and before starting this medicine we had to get them tested to make sure they did not have an active infection so what exactly is heartworm and what do you need to know about it to keep your dogs and cats safe. Veterinarian Robert Reed is back with us. Dr. Reed is medical director at VCA Rancho Mirage Animal Hospital. Hey, Robert. Hi, Lori. Robert, nice to hear your voice. Thank you. You too. Robert, what is heartworm? Well, heartworm, of course, is a worm. Um, it mainly affects dogs. Um, unlike most of the worms we think of that might affect dogs, this one does not live in the intestine. It lives in the bloodstream. And as they mature in the dog, they settle in the main arteries around the heart, so they cause heart disease. And most dogs that get heartworm disease will die from it. So how can we detect early infection, Robert? It's probably important to to recognize how heartworms are transmitted to dogs and what leads to the infection uh, to understand what we can do to prevent it and how we might manage it. The heartworms, of course, being a blood-borne uh, disease, have to be inoculated by something like, in this case, a mosquito that can carry the parasite from one dog who's infected to a dog who's not infected. And there are only certain types of mosquitoes that can do this because the parasite has to be transformed within the mosquito before it can become infected to another dog. And for this reason, some areas are going to be more problematic for heartworms than others because sometimes the mosquitoes are more prevalent that can carry heartworms. And, of course, those mosquitoes have to have a reservoir of dogs in the area that have heartworms. So you'll definitely see some variation in the frequency of heartworm disease in any given area. So to prevent dogs from developing heartworm disease, we recommend that they be tested to ensure that they don't currently carry the parasite and then go on a monthly tablet as a preventive to keep them from getting disease associated with heartworms. And it's kind of interesting how this works. It's not actually preventing the infestation of worms, but rather it's killing any worms that they do pick up. That's why it's only given once a month, so that anything that a dog has picked up in the previous month 
will still be killed or will be killed by the medication. The heartworm larva that circulates in the bloodstream is vulnerable to the medication for about 30 days. The medication doesn't actually stay in the system for 30 days. It stays there for one day and then it's gone. It just kills anything that a dog has picked up in the last month. Now, can cats get heartworm? Cats can get heartworm. Yes, they're not the primary carriers, they're not the primary hosts for heartworm, and it's a little harder for them to get it. And it's really unusual for a cat to serve as a reservoir for infection. But cats can get heartworm, and they can suffer heartworm disease. In fact, in some cases, it's actually more severe in cats than it is in dogs. Robert, as I mentioned earlier, our dogs are now taking monthly preventive medicine. Should all dogs and cats be taking this? You know, I think so. It's really, because the heartworm incidence varies by region, it's important to talk to your your local veterinarian to, to know what the actual risk is. I don't think heartworm disease does any harm. And actually, I mean, heartworm prevention does any harm, but it actually, and it actually does protect against some other diseases, but not every area has a high risk for heartworms. And it's also important to keep in mind that risk levels can change over time as, introdu- as mosquitoes are introduced into an area, as the population of infected dogs grows in an area, and sometimes when wildlife like coyotes become infected with uh, heartworm disease, they can serve as reservoirs as well, which can affect the frequency uh, or incidence of heartworm disease in a given area. Why do we have to test the dog before starting heartworm medication? That's a good question. Uh, Usually the main reason we test dogs is to see if they already have been affected by the worm, because once they have it, it's not going to be affected by the medication. In other words, the preventive treatment does not get rid of the worm if it's been there for more than 30 days. So if a dog has heartworms that are in a mature stage, the medication that we use for prevention will not work. The treatment has to be done differently, and it's much more involved than the prevention. If we didn't know that they had heartworms already and we put them on that medication, we might think we were protecting them when in reality they had a disease that was already developing that we were not addressing. Um, There's also a very slight risk that if a dog has heartworms in its system and you start them on a medication, you might cause some illness in them. But the main reason is to make sure that you don't overlook the fact that they already have heartworms and that you're not addressing it. What was the impact of the Katrina disaster on the prevalence of heartworm disease nationally? It's hard to say for sure, but you'd expect that certain areas that might have been lightly affected by heartworms could have had their incidence increase as a result of dogs from Louisiana or another similarly high area, high incidence area of heartworms were transferred into that area. So if a number of dogs came into an area that had heartworms and no one was used to having heartworms around and weren't using prevention, and a mosquito was present that present that could transmit the heartworms, then that would certainly increase the risk locally for dogs affected by those mosquitoes that had been exposed to the positive dog. So, Laura, you mentioned the effect that uh, the transporting Katrina dogs into an area might have um, on the incidence of heartworm disease, and that's an example of how the the risk of heartworm disease, the level of risk 
can evolve over time. Uh, for example, again, we have in Southern California recently learned that there are species of mosquito that were that are not native to California that have been introduced from other countries and are capable of carrying heartworms. And we have not previously had a large number of mosquitoes that could transmit heartworms to our dogs. Now we have a potential population of mosquitoes that's much larger than it used to be, and our level of risk is expected to increase in the next few years, particularly if pet owners in our area are not becoming more aware of it and are not beginning to use the prevention more readily, more effectively. Do we see heartworm disease in other places around the world, such as areas where there are lots of mosquitoes, and I'm thinking Africa and South America? There are different types of heartworms, but certainly you can see heartworm disease in any area where the parasite exists and a mosquito that's capable of transmitting it is present as well. The heartworm disease that we deal with in the U.S. is fairly specifically for our hemisphere. Veterinarian Robert Reed, thank you so much. You're welcome. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. So the race to the presidential election is as intense as anyone can remember. But as usual, issues involving animals are not really part of the debate. However, I just learned of an issue concerning the welfare of horses that really will be affected by the election, no matter its outcome. And to explain what I'm talking about, I want to welcome Susan Wagner. She's president and founder of Equine Advocates. Susan is spearheading a campaign to collect signatures so that President Obama can be presented with a petition to protect horses from slaughter. And your action is needed now. Susan founded Equine Advocates more than 20 years ago, and it is dedicated to promoting the humane and responsible treatment of horses. And yes, horses are still being slaughtered. Good to have you on the show again, Susan. Thank you for having me. Susan, how and why did you come up with this idea to start a petition to end a horse slaughter at this time? Well, I'm not going to go into all the details because the history of this issue has been long and rocky. But what I can say for sure is that when I rescued my first horse back in 1994, that was enough inspiration for me to found this organization two years later. And one of my mentors was a woman named Kathleen Doyle, who spearheaded the Save the Horses campaign in California. It was a state initiative, and if passed, California would become the first state in the nation to ban horse slaughter through a state initiative, which it did. I had the honor of being there on November 3rd, 1998, as the returns came in. It was one of the greatest nights of my life. And um, in California, which is the biggest agribusiness state in the nation, it is the most populated state as far as people and horses 
passed this initiative by 60% of the vote. And so we all thought this is the springboard for a federal bill. And that was 1998, and we haven't really come close. The closest we've ever come was in 2006 when the American Horse Slaughter Prevention Act passed in the House but was blocked in the Senate. So we never got close again uh, since with a federal bill. So in in that amount of time, however, um, there hasn't been an operating slaughterhouse in the United States since 2007, and you know which is great, but we are still shipping more than 150,000 horses live across our borders into Mexico and Canada for the purpose of slaughter. And so uh, one of the great things that happened um, is that in 2010, we started to get information in the way of science and documentation that we didn't have about horses prior to that. And as you know, President Obama and Vice President Biden uh, became, you know, got into office in 2008. And so they had the benefit of getting this information, which other presidents had not. And also we as activists, you know, only had to deal with the cruelty issue, which we know the government doesn't really care about cruelty um, because we're, our society is inundated with it. And then we had the arguments, well, horses are part of our culture, and they settled the West, and all those usual things that never really got us very far. But then in 2010, uh, there was a landmark study published in Elsevier that proved that anyone eating the meat of horses who have been treated with the drug phenobutazone which is called Butte for short. It's like a horse aspirin. It's the most common drug given to horses, and 98% of them test positive for it. It's a great drug for horses, but if you're a person eating the meat of a horse who's been given that, you increase your risk for getting all kinds of cancers and blood diseases. Okay, so that was monumental. That was the first time the European Union actually blinked um, when they learned that the meat of horses from this country mostly tested positive for that drug. Okay, that was in 2010. In 2013, you had the European horse meat scandal, which gripped that continent for more than a year and is actually still going on, where products that were labeled 100% beef were actually 100% horse meat. And that was food fraud rampant all across the continent, including in England, where they don't eat horses. It goes against their culture just as it goes against ours. And they found it in school lunches, in frozen dinners, and it, it, it was horrible. Mm. Okay, that was 2013. In 2015, there was another study published in Elsevier about, from Chapman University of California, which proved that there was horse meat in some chopped meat products in the American food supply. So <laughs> this president and vice president have been witness to all of this. And so in 2014, um, Vice President Joe Biden attached language to a spending bill to continue to defund horse meat inspectors in the United States. So thanks to him, we haven't had uh, horse slaughterhouses operating here um, since 2007, and he continued that trend in 2014. And, um, but we still have these horses going over the border. Now, while all that was going on, there was legislation introduced. There's a bill called the SAFE Act, which doesn't really do 
the trick. It doesn't really accomplish what people think that it does. And so as an organization, we, we can't support it unless it's amended. But to tell you the truth, um, with this Congress, I mean, they don't want to pass anything. So the, the, to think that they would even consider passing a, a horse protection law is kind of out of the question, even if it was the greatest bill in the world. Yeah. And so we're we're left with nothing. But, you know, because I'm just so involved with this issue, a uh, couple of things happened. I was invited to speak at this rally, um, and it was under the banner of the SAFE Act, and I told the person who invited me, well, you know, I, I don't mind if people want to talk about it, but I can't personally talk under the banner of this bill. And this person said to me, well, you know, it's not a great bill, but the activists have to have something to hang on to. And I said, well, you know, I, I, I disagree. I think the activists need to be treated like they have intelligence, which they do, and give them respect for their time and their energy, and in many cases money that they're spending on something that has no chance of passing. So I, I got a little upset about that. And then right after that, like a week later, I read about um, the two main candidates running for president. Okay, Hillary Clinton has a decent record in Congress. So she at least has a voting record on animals. But then she sort of shocked everybody by announcing that if she becomes president, she will appoint Ken Salazar, the former Interior Secretary, who had to leave office under questionable circumstances to be the head of her transition team, which I found and millions of other people found to be quite upsetting because he was involved in the Tom Davis affair. Uh, just to remind you, Tom Davis is a rancher and a horse dealer who, under Salazar's watch, purchased nearly 1,800 wild horses at $10 apiece and sold them for slaughter in Mexico. Wow. Okay. So that was not good. But then Trump, who doesn't have a voting record, um, if if who he has selected um, for his agricultural advisory committee is any indication of how he'll treat horses, it's as bad or worse. It's like a who's who of, of horse slaughter proponents. And he's picked, I don't know if you, have you heard of Protect the Harvest? Do you know what that is? Tell us what that is. It's a PAC, a political action committee that is headed by a guy named Forrest Lucas. This is a really scary guy. He is the owner of Lucas Oil, and he runs this political action committee, which is pro-horse slaughter, pro-puppy mill, and anti-animal, as though animals are not sentient beings. And he is at the, at the top of, of Trump's shortlist to be interior secretary. So with those choices, it just drove me crazy. And, and I thought to myself, well, Obama and Biden have had experience with this issue, unlike any other two people in the Oval Office. Presidents that are outgoing can do things during the lame duck session that they can't or wouldn't do during their normal terms. So what if we approached them with a petition that had quite a few names, you know, we're talking about a lot of, a lot of signatures, showing the support um, to ban horse slaughter, would Obama and Biden consider banning horse slaughter as part of their legacy. And now it's it's a long shot, but it's it's the only chance we have. I don't see any other chance we have 
to get this done. And I kind of feel pretty good about it because I think that once the election is over, if we have the support that we hope that we will, that they would consider it. Susan, how many signatures are you trying to get? We'd like to get at least 100,000. And how can people access and sign the petition? Just go to our website, um, equineadvocates.org, and the first thing you'll see up on the screen is end horse slaughter petition. Click on it, and it takes you right there. And specifically, you're asking the president and the vice president to ban horse slaughter. Yes, once and for all, to ban the slaughter of United States domestic and wild equines in this country and to ban the transport of live equines across our borders into Mexico and Canada or to any other country for the purpose of slaughter. President and founder of Equine Advocates, Susan Wagner. Tell us your website one more time, please. www.equineadvocates.org Susan, thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild to animals on farms and in agriculture to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for a serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Your Animals Today fun facts for the day are about koalas. When early European settlers first encountered koalas in Australia, they thought the tree-climbing animals were bears or monkeys. Even today, people still incorrectly refer to koalas as koala bears. In fact, koalas, like kangaroos, are actually marsupials, which are also known as pouched mammals because the adult females have a marsupium, or pouch, where their young stay until fully developed. Koalas are only found in Australia, and they are one of that country's iconic symbols. Koalas have special physical characteristics that complement their tree-dwelling lifestyle including their two opposable digits to grip branches and depict the tasty eucalyptus leaves, their main form of nourishment. And these are your Animals Today fun facts for the day. Welcome back to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us at animalstodayradio.com. You know... A few weeks ago, we were talking a little bit about bats, and I mentioned that we had found a small dead bat in our backyard, and uh, we, in fact, talked about bats and rabies risk with a veterinarian, Dr. Robert Reed, and even after that segment, I'm thinking, you know, I don't know anything really about bats. Uh, We've talked about them in the context of the wind farms and how they're getting killed there. And then this little segment with Dr. Reed. But really, you know, I should know a little bit more about bats. And then, coincidentally, we get delivered a brand new, very colorful, nice book about bats. And I'm paging through and I'm like, hey, 
here's our opportunity. So now I want to welcome Merlin Tuttle. He's the author of a wonderful new book, The Secret Lives of Bats. Welcome, Merlin. I'm glad to be here. Merlin, what strikes me as I'm paging through your uh, wonderful book is the the variety of, of bats around the world. It's really, the people don't know how many different sorts of bats there are. And you're not even hardly seeing 1% of them when you look at my book. It's an absolutely unbelievable. There are giants with nearly six-foot wingspans. There are tiny little guys that weigh a third less than a U.S. penny. There are snow-white ones, jet-black ones, ones that are snow-white with black spots, black ones with white spots. There are red ones, there are orange ones, there are almost any color you can think of, ones with brilliant yellow wings like on the cover of my book. Painted bats of Southeast Asia, they're just as brightly colored as any butterfly. The subtitle is My Adventures with the World's Most Misunderstood Mammals. Uh, What are the main misunderstandings or misconceptions about bats? Well, unfortunately, there are too many people that profit by our fear of bats, and they keep telling us that bats could give us all kinds of dread diseases, when in fact the track record of bats in reality is one of the finest on our planet when it comes to living safely with people. I've worked with bats for 55 years on every continent where they occur. I've personally handled, photographed, studied hundreds of species, often surrounded by literally millions at a time in their caves. I've never been attacked by a bat. I've never contracted a disease from a bat. And in fact, for any human who simply uses common sense and doesn't, you know, if you find a bat that's out in the open in the daytime where you can pick it up, it's probably sick, and that's a good one to leave alone. Yeah. And But just, if people just don't pick up and try to handle bats, there's so little danger that it's incalculably small. But you mentioned there are industry forces that, that promote this image. These are exterminators? These are people who want to rid the world of bats? Oh, there are a variety of people that uh, would like us to fear bats. Some of those have to do with selling very expensive vaccines. Some have to do with pest control. Some mm. have the most guilty ones lately appear to be virologists that uh, want to study rare diseases, diseases that are so rare that we're only just now discovering them, but they call them emerging diseases to make them sound a little more scary, and then they connect them up with bats, and by that time you've got something you really scare somebody with because they don't know either about these rare diseases or about bats. And it's good for getting grants and headline media stories. Now, I know we're speaking to you in Austin, and Austin has a lot of history related to bats. Tell us about that. Austin's kind of a typical story for me. Uh, When the bats first started moving into our downtown bridge, hundreds of thousands of them, that's not so typical, but uh, when they started moving in, health officials reported that they were largely rabid and going to attack people. People of Austin panicked, made national headlines, international headlines that hundreds of thousands of rabid bats were invading and attacking the citizens of Austin. And yet, all we had to do was caution people not to pick up bats that were out in the open, leave them alone. 
and 35 years later we're still waiting for the first person to be attacked or in any way harmed by a bat. No one's contracted disease from a bat. We now simply understand that they're eating 15 tons of crop and yard pests on average night and bring in 12 million tourist dollars every summer from the millions of people that come to observe them close up. So it's a bat destination. Yeah, and you know, I've I've been at the world's most important places where large colonies of bats remain in close association with people, and I've yet to find a single instance where anybody can prove that a single, uh, you know, outbreak of disease was caused by a bat. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a, a normal bat that isn't feeling threatened is just as cute as any chipmunk or hamster. The bats that people traditionally saw were bats that somebody captured, yeah. held upside down for a picture, and the poor little thing thought he was about to be eaten and uh, snarled big, and this little guy with a head the size of your end of your thumb gets blown up to page size looking like a saber-toothed tiger. It's no wonder people were afraid of bats. Yeah. There is a definite cuteness that you uh, that you see as you're paging through through your pictures. It's really remarkable. Well, for anybody who wants to really see a lot of bats as they are, uh, just go to my website at MerlinTuttle.com, yep. and you can see hundreds of pictures of bats from all over the world doing almost everything a bat does. Merlin, what threats do bats face? They face all kinds of threats. Like, you know, all animals face the problem of losing habitat. In my experience, the single biggest threat to bats is irrational fear. Mm. Sure, you could die of a disease from a bat, but the odds are a whole lot better that you'll die from being hit by a falling spacecraft. And quite aside from from fear is the neglect that comes when people don't understand a group of animals and uh, so they don't get promoted. You know, bats can be just as cute and winsome as any panda or any other cute animal on the planet. And anybody that goes to my website will be able to see that easily or you can see it from my book. And uh, so it's just a matter of what we don't see very well, we fear. Bats that have five and nearly six foot wingspans and live out in the open are eulogized as folk heroes, whereas in parts of the world where they're all small and live in hard to see places, people fear them simply because they don't understand them. Yeah. Merlin, it's just around Halloween time, so I just wanted to ask you about the vampire bat. Uh, Where are they? Vampire bats live only in Latin America. There are three species of them. Only one species actually ever harms people or their livestock. Well, the book is The Secret Lives of Bats, My Adventures with the World's Most Misunderstood Animals. And not only are you describing all the variety of bats and what they do, we get to learn about your life, which you've dedicated to protecting and educating about these fascinating animals. Thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today. Thank you very much for having me. And this is Peter Spiegel encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. The animals.